Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're excited to welcome Dr. Avinash Bala, Research Associate at the University of Oregon and founder of Perceptivo. So welcome, Avinash. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I love what you guys do. I think uh, communicating science to people who are not necessarily scientists is, is probably the most ignored part of science and, and, and the duty that scientists have that we are um, least faithful to or we adhere to the least and, and it should actually be the biggest part of our job. So I'm really happy that you guys reached out and I'm really happy to participate. I, I think speaking for both of us, it's it's one of the most fun things that we do in our jobs because we get to learn so much and uh, get to hear all the cool science from the people actually doing it. And so it's something that we've, we really, really enjoy. I, I, if I were from your perspective, you know, speaking as someone who enjoys consuming science news and, you know, learning about various disciplines, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, we, we tend to over-specialize and it's it's a great idea to know more about what's happening in science in general for everybody. Now, today for you, we've brought you in to talk about uh, pupil dilation, right? Absolutely. And so uh, it's, I mean, when I first hear, well, I, I read a whole article on it. And so I, I can't act totally ignorant because I read all this, all this stuff from an article when we found you. So I know a little bit more than I'll say there. But uh, when I first heard just a pupil dilation, I'm like, okay, it's, you know, if it gets more light, it changes. And uh, I don't understand why, what, what would be different. And so uh, I'll let you go in and explain how this works to us. Absolutely, yeah. So um, uh, my research, which which has been going on for more than twenty years now, is uh, one of those famous accidental discoveries in science. I mean, my discovery isn't famous, but the idea that science makes progress by accidental discovery is very famous, and this is a good example of that. Um, I I started by trying to develop uh, an easy way of testing whether owls could hear a sound or not, or alternatively, whether they could tell the difference between two sounds. And I, I was doing something completely different. And what we had basically was we had an owl in a sound room and we were monitoring it using an infrared camera. And what I found was that every once in a while something would happen, like somebody would slam a door or um, we would play a new sound to the owl and its eyes would suddenly get brighter uh, uh, from our perspective in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the sound room. And initially it was just a, you know, I was, uh, I couldn't figure out what was going on, but then systematically I was able to figure out that that actually was an effect. It, it wasn't just something that uh, happened accidentally. It was actually caused by new sounds. And so that sent me down a completely different path from, uh, you know, the direction which I had started. And, and what I found was uh, after doing a lot of reading and research in the library, was that there was this response called the orienting response. And it was discovered by Pavlov uh, many, many years ago, like so many things. Um, you know, I, I've become a fan of Pavlov, an amazing guy who, who won a Nobel Prize for studying the digestive system and then decided, okay, I've, I'm not gonna do anything more in this field. I'm instead going to, to try and figure out how the brain works and spent the rest of his life doing other research for which you would probably go, have gotten an, uh, other co couple of Nobel Prizes. So um, anyway, Pavlov discovered um, a, as a part of his famous experiment in which someone would ring a bell and condition a dog to expect food and they would salivate, that, that everybody knows about conditioning. 
But one interesting thing he noticed was that if some new person rang the bell, the dog would salivate in expectation of food, but would also turn around to look at the bell, at the direction where the sound of the bell was coming from. And over time, uh, he was able to attribute it to novelty. So anytime something new happens, um, animals tend to turn to look at it. And I mean, we, and, and we do the same thing. If, if I'm talking and that, you know, that little painting thing, that uh, mask uh, hanging behind me on the wall were to fall, I would reflexively turn around to look at it. Um, and, and I must apologize. I say the word reflexively, it isn't actually a reflex. It's an orienting response. And so this is hardwired into us. What it does is it alerts us to the possibility of danger. So every time um, we are in an environment, we adapt to it. Things that are part of the environment, our brain ignores. And whenever there's a change, a flash of light, sound, someone touches you on your shoulder unexpectedly, as has happened to all of us. We are sitting absorbed in something, somebody touches us on the shoulder and our head whips around to see what happened. And that's the orienting response. Okay. So how does that tie in with pupil dilation? Well, it turns out that, um, and, and at this point of time, let me see if I can share um, a slide with you. Um, Pablo found that orienting was actually um, of two types. There was uh, the orienting, which is consists of changing the body orientation in response to events outside the world. And then there was another set of events that essentially accompanied um, that muscle movements that allow us to uh, look at or, or, or focus our ears on, depending on our species, uh, towards uh, the source of that, uh, you know, change in the environment. Okay. So um, the orienting response is evoked by novelty or something that is, is, is changing in our environment. And what Pavlov and his group of researchers found um, was that the orienting response could be overt or covert. And what they call the covert orienting was essentially um, changes in our physiology. So when we hear an unexpected sound, our heart rate and our breathing rate slow, our pupils dilate, and there's a massive burst of activity in our cortex. So our brain wakes up. All our cortical neurons, which are usually synchronize, desynchronize because all of them burst into activity. And, and if you're recording the EEG, you get a massive burst of that. And so pupil dilation is tied physiologically to the mechanisms that allow our body to respond. Uh, but it isn't necessarily something that helps us. Um, you know, the, 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 a lot of people ask questions about why would our pupils dilate? And, and perhaps we can talk about that later. Uh, but this is essentially the idea that there's an overt uh, orienting, which is what we can see. Ears move, eyes move, head moves. Um, in, in the case of animals who have sensors in other parts of their body, they will orient themselves differently. For example, underwater mollusks will respond differently than um, obviously we will. Um, and so orienting is, is, a, is a survival response. It allows us to immediately judge whether something is a threat. And so since I started working with owls, we had this pretty simple setup in which um, we had an infrared emitter and detector in front of the owl's eye. And when the pupil dilated, 
um, you know, we had we positioned the LEDs such that when the pupil dilated, uh, we got more light back reflected from inside the eye. And so when we digitize that data and we could plot it on a computer and what you would see essentially is um, that the sound comes on say here and the pupil is constantly oscillating. You know, our pupils are, are, are never a fixed diameter. Even if nothing in the environment changes, they keep um, you know, constricting and dilating. Yeah. And that's something called the hippus. And the hippus is a pretty slow response. The pupil dilates and constricts about once every couple of seconds. Um, and that's what you see reflected here in the beginning. And then once the sound is played, you see this, you know, giant uh, dilation. In, in, in our case, because of the way we arranged our sensor, the size increases. Now, uh, this was in the late 90s. And since then, cameras have become more plentiful and cheaper and, and computing power has increased. So nowadays, we wouldn't use a system like this. We would just uh, image the eye. Uh, capture uh, capture the pupil and figure out whether its size changed or not. Okay. And so once we started analyzing our data like this, we were able to show uh, that the response was elicited by sound, and we were able to show that it was elicited by new sounds. Um, so if you have a response that's elicited by new sounds, it obviously means that it isn't elicited by older sounds. Okay, and so here's an example of what happens um, when you repeat a sound. The first time you play a sound, you get a big response. Again, zero. So this axis is time. The horizontal axis is time. Zero is when the sound is played by the experimenter. The y-axis or the vertical axis shows the size of the pupil, a measure of size of the pupil. And we here is um, a, a, an instance in which we played a three kilohertz tone. Uh, to the owl. And the first time we did that, we got a nice big response. In the second trial, which was about 10 seconds later, uh, the response is decreased. And by the time we get to trial number four, that response has gone away completely. And orienting, uh, so what this shows you is that the response habituates, it goes away. And, and, and this is a, a, a good illustration of the fact uh, that of, of examples of which we see in everyday life. You know, you move into a new house, as I'm sure you guys have. And the first night you try to sleep in that house, there's weird sounds, there's creaks and groans. And, uh, you know, you wonder how you would ever get to sleep in this place. And then a week later, boom, you know, you're asleep and only an unusual sound for that environment would wake you. You know, a great example of these are soldiers who go to war and, you know, the it's, it's impossible to sleep. There's explosions and gunfire. And, and after that, after being there for a few weeks, um, soldiers who come back from the Middle East tell me that uh, they would sleep through everything and only wake up when their name was called. Okay, or, or they heard a siren. And so you can get you can get habituated to almost anything. And um, other examples of that, it isn't just hearing, it's also vision, it's also touch. Uh, you wear a new shirt which has, you know, or a new type of clothing which has stitches in a different place. You know, it's you can feel it. Uh, but an hour or so later, it's gone. Your body's gotten used to it. Those neurons that are receiving that signal, which is new, um, and, and the part of the brain that's interpreting those signals has gotten, has accepted that as part of the environment. Okay. And now this habituation process, of course, will not happen if the sound is coming from a line behind you, 
okay, uh, or a tiger who's about to attack you. So you will habituate to sounds that are non-threatening, but you will not habituate to sounds that elicit a threat because in a threatening environment, the sound isn't the only thing that happens. It's followed by other events which associate that sound with something uh, that affects your emotions, frightening or joyous or whatever. And so then you could not habituate. But in the absence of that, especially in controlled environments, um, you get habituated pretty quickly. So now you can imagine how we can use um, this the sound to figure out whether individuals can tell the difference between two sounds. We would say, uh, play a sound from here, this location in space. You would play a sound, the first time we get a nice big response, and you know, after 10 presentations, the, the response is gone. The pupil isn't reacting at all. And now you move the sound over here and you play it. And now the sound's coming from a completely different location. And so you would get a response. And, and in the upper uh, graph there, you see uh, the owl's response, that the line down here is the average of many trials of sounds presented from a speaker that's to the left of the owl. And then every once in a while, we present a sound from the right. And you see that the sounds from the right elicit a bigger response. Does, so, this, does this tie in with fight or flight? Then? It does tie in, absolutely. It does tie in with flight and flight response. And, and it is thought, or it was Pavlov's hypothesis, and we haven't seen anything to, um, uh, to reject that or anything that causes us to reject the hypothesis, that the orienting response is the first in a series of events um, which are labeled various things. The orienting response is not, you know, everything in biology is tied into everything else. So uh, we are sitting here happily, something happens, we, we have to hear the sound, then we have to perceive it and then we orient towards it, and then we pay attention to the sound. Okay, when we pay attention to the sound, our cognitive systems kick in. Is this a threatening sound? If it's a threatening sound, then flight or fight kicks in. Okay, if it is a non-threatening sound, then the system settles back to normal. So this is a step in a series of events that informs us of what's happening in the outside world. It is perhaps uh, the first set of events that are happening in our central nervous system. Um, our neurons that perceive these stimuli also adapt. They can uh, be sensitized or desensitized. But orienting happens uh, inside our central nervous system. So this is the first set of events where our brain is taking sounds that are coming from the outside um, and, and not in our cortex, but in our uh, midbrain is, or, or even in our brainstem is taking these sounds, processing them, and driving some neurons to cause us to orient towards. Now, what happens when we orient and see a friend or a foe will decide what's going to happen next? So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I I wasn't trying to interrupt you. If you had another point, you can continue with it. But um, I, I am curious, what all can we do now that we've figured this out? I say we, but <laughs> I wasn't part of it. But <laughs> now that you've figured this out, knowing that our pupil is going to dilate with some sort of stimuli, what all can we do with that knowledge now? So what we've done in, in the 
So we've spent a lot of time working with owls and recently we've moved to working with human babies and, and I'll explain why. But in the owls, we were able to use the sound to show that, um, to measure, detect, to hearing, to measure hearing thresholds. That is what's the quietest sound that the owl can hear. Now, owl hearing is much more sensitive than owls. They can hear sounds that are um, uh, 10 to 100 times quieter than we can hear. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really hard to set up these experiments because you think, oh, you've got everything fine, the whole world is quiet, but no, the owls can hear stuff that we can't. So we have to work really hard to silence doors, put up notices saying, you know, tread quietly, don't talk in a room that's five rooms away. Um, but um, what we were able to do uh, was to show that we can use this as a test of sensitivity or detection. What's the quietest sound the owl can hear? You're also able to use this as a, as a test for discrimination, which is what's shown in this figure here. This shows us that the owl can tell the difference between a sound coming um, six degrees apart. Um, so we were able to use it to assess spatial discrimination. So in, in a set of papers between 2006 and uh, gosh, 2013, I think, we showed that um, the sensitivity of our brain, the neurons in our brain, is equivalent to the sensitivity of our behavioral uh, measure. So if, if you say, say how accurate is the owl in um, determining whether sounds come from different locations, well, it turns out it's about as sensitive as the average of all the neurons that are making the decision, um, which was interesting because there were alternative uh, theories to explain how sensitivity works. Uh, but we were able to show uh, measure discrimination based on pitch, uh, what sort of pitch can owls discriminate, uh, what sort of space they can discriminate, space horizontally and vertically. Uh, we were able to test for uh, the fact that owls can not only tell the difference between two sounds, but can also tell the difference between the same sound played backwards. Uh, now, I mean, obviously that makes sense if we, if we play a a record or a, a audio recording backwards, it doesn't make it sound the same, you know, because words don't have meaning anymore. But in the case of the owl, we were playing sounds that were basically broadband hisses, so sounds that sounded like shh. And if we took those sounds and switched them back, the owl could tell that, uh, uh, you know, when we were presenting it backwards. So we were able to test a lot of things in owls in a very simple and easy to run experiment. Uh, and while we were doing all that, our brains were trying to figure out the exact same question you asked, which is, what else can we do with it? And so the uh, obvious answer was, hey, maybe we can test people. And, and I showed that in people, uh, for example, if you flash um, different faces on screen, if one of the face happens to be um, a male who is, you know, um, like yourself, uh, there's no facial hair at all versus someone who has a beard and a mustache and, you know, maybe glasses, um, if you flash that face up on the screen for a very short interval of time, uh, you can look at a pupil sizes of the human subjects who are watching those images being presented and tell that they could tell the difference. Now, um, in adults, of course, that doesn't help us much because except for very rare situations where someone is ill or debilitated and cannot tell you what they are seeing, most of the time, you can ask an adult, hey, did you see the difference? Or they can push a button or, or say yes or no. 
but there is one large group of people who actually cannot communicate with us, and those are babies. And so we are like, wait a minute, you know, why can't we use it to test babies? And and so we looked into that, and it turns out that there is actually a market for a test uh, that can figure out uh, whether babies can hear or not, or in other words, an uh, a, a early test for hearing loss in infants. Um, currently, infant hearing is tested by putting electrodes uh, on the neck, and um, it, it, it's a good test, it works, but it isn't easily available, it isn't easy to do, and it requires the infant be completely still. So, you know, when babies are young, you can do it when they are sleeping, but as they grow older, you need to um, anesthetize them or sedate them, and, and that's not very popular anymore. So there is um, there is a need for a test that allows us to figure out by the time the baby is three or four, four months old whether or not the baby's hearing is good, it, it is normal. If there is hearing loss, then we would like to intervene as early as possible. So by the time the baby is nine to 12 months old, which is when language skill starts to develop, that by the time we've already in, uh, you know, put the intervention in place, um, whatever that intervention may be, it could be hearing aids, it could be a cochlear implant, it could be behavioral um, alteration, it could be uh, teaching the child sign language, but there has to be something that is in place by the time. And, and, and currently we are not able to test most of the babies before they are six months old. We, we are missing about half of them. And so a test like this uh, has the possibility of allowing us to test babies uh, in time. And so we, um, we tested about 40 babies. So let me show you some baby data. Uh, let's skip past this old stuff. It isn't quite as interesting. Um, so why babies? Um, well, currently we test their behavior using physiology. There isn't a behavioral way to test young babies. Uh, you can test them when, they, when they're about three or four years old, but not that quickly. Um, and so um, there are some drawbacks to existing tests, but, but a rapid test for early hearing that can not only test whether babies can hear, but also whether they can, for example, hear the different difference between two similar sounds like pa or ba, you know, the standard uh, phonemes. Um, and so what we do is, uh, uh, you know, and the, all of this stuff took a while, but basically we have a baby sitting in a car seat and uh, we have a camera that's observing its eyes. And behind the camera, we have a monitor that's playing an animation. Um, and the animation captures the baby's attention. It's very simple uh, animation and I'll show you in the next video. But the need for animation was pretty simple. For owls, our owls, their heads are actually fixed. And so the owl can't move its head. And interestingly, the owl's eyes don't move within their skull. So if, if humans need to look in this direction, we can turn our head, we can also just turn our eyes. But it turns out that owl eyes aren't spherical. If you look at it from the side, they're elongated, they're tubular. So inside their skull, they can't really move. So when an owl needs to look at something, their whole head needs to turn. That's one of the reasons why owls can sort of turn their head around more than 180 degrees. Because if we need to look around behind us, we turn our heads and then our eyes move the rest of the way. But if the owl needs to look behind it, well, its whole head needs to turn around. And that's why the heads are so flexible. But um, to, to, to end the digression, 
if we have the owl's head fixed, it's always looking in the same direction. Now with babies, if, if either of you has babies, you know that there's no way they're going to get the baby's head fixed in place. That'll last about five seconds. So we needed a way to get the baby to look at the camera and, and we used an animation based on earlier research. And once we have the baby looking at the screen, which is roughly where the cameras are, uh, we can start presenting sounds and trying to figure out whether or not the baby hears the sound. And so the experiment works something like this. Uh, it's based on a really interesting paper. At least the title is really interesting. It's called The Goldilocks Effect. Uh, and it, it was published in 2012. Uh, and the link is at the bottom. And what essentially happens here is that we have a very simple animation. There are these little boxes. And every four seconds, something pops out from behind these. And did you hear that sound? There's another one. So when the object reaches the top of its trajectory, we either play a sound or we don't play a sound. And these movements are random. Any of these objects can pop out from behind a box, go to the top, and when it reaches the top, we play a sound. So this is one of the animations we use. Uh, we've tried others. And basically, the idea is that the, um, the animation is periodic. Every few seconds, the same thing happens. It isn't too predictable. If it was completely unpredictable, if it was just one thing bouncing back and forth, then the baby would look at it for a while and then be bored. So we have to capture the baby's interest. And so uh, the reason we don't play a sound every time is that visual movement also elicits pupil dilation. Okay, it's something new. So we have to make sure that what we are looking at is only the sound induced part of it. Okay, so what we do is we, we know when we are presenting these movements and we know when we presented the sound and all the time we are tracking uh, the owls, uh, <laughs> the baby's pupil uh, using these cameras. Um, this camera in the center is, is a very fancy camera we bought like 10 years ago for $10,000, actually no, $18,000. Uh, but these cameras on the right and left, these are based on the Raspberry Pi, uh, which is a very small single board computer about the size of a playing card. And so uh, this camera cost $18,000. These camera systems cost about, I don't know, $500 maybe. Um, and most of that money is spent on the lens. Uh, the, the, the computer and the camera cost about $70. Uh, and so we've, we've managed to use cheaper computers. Um, we are using infrared vision. And uh, we are able to essentially track the uh, responses of the baby's eye. So now I'm going to show another movie. Um, there's a um, eye on top. And when I play it, there will be a sound. And you will see dilation happening. Hopefully. So this is a difficult thing to see because the eye is also moving. Again, remember, this is a baby. The eyes aren't fixed. Or the head isn't fixed either. And so when we track um, the baby's head movement, or sorry, pupil size during this video, what you see is it's that's the same video on top, and at bottom, you will essentially um, see the pupil size. Okay, so I'm sorry. I think I've got to go back 
and stop that video. Okay. So again, that's the actual video. This is the data we've extracted from the video that's my pupil size. Zero is when the sound is played, and you can see that shortly after the sound is played, the pupil size starts uh, to increase. Whoops. Okay, it's a different baby, a different day, um, same kind of uh, response. Okay. Um, so this is just to show you that, hey, our data is actually real. Um, and, and, and you know, this sort of uh, digitizing the movie and converting it and presenting it over Zoom, it's probably attenuating the quality somewhat. But in real life, when we are looking at the baby on a monitor on the, on, on, in a room, in a different room, while the baby and the parent are inside a sound room, uh, it's really easy to see on a big monitor that the pupil is responding. Now, I, 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 I just say, I was going to say, it, that is awesome that you're able to do this because it's going to be so much easier in non uh, feeling like invasive for a child to be able to test them rather than especially if you gotta like try to knock them out and all of these things oh yeah yeah absolutely we um when when we talk to when we talk to auditory research they uh, look at this and say yeah that's interesting but when we talk to people who actually test babies they're like oh this is the best thing on earth no, no, when are you going to give it to me and and we have uh uh, there's an audiologist friend of mine who is uh, uh, who works with uh, in children in a school with children uh, which has children with special needs, and she was like, "Oh, when can you get me a healthcare code for an insurance code for this so I can start testing my my babies?" Um, so the people who are actually working in, in infant childcare and pediatric uh, healthcare um, know that uh, the system is currently not perfect. Although on paper it sounds like everything is good. Yeah. And in addition to measuring size, so this is the same video as the last slide, uh, we can also measure where the eyes are looking. Okay. Now, the reason this is important is that it allows us to address other things. So, for example, when, when the baby is looking straight ahead, the pupil is a full circle, and we can measure its area pretty accurately. But if the baby were to look away, the circle gets foreshortened. It starts to look like an oval. And so we need to know if the baby is looking away uh, because, um, you know, let's use a plane. Um, if, we, if the eye moves in this direction, then this diameter becomes shorter. Yeah. But this diameter stays the same. Okay. So if we were to take a circle and always monitor the length of the longest diameter, we would know what the actual size of the pupil was regardless of eye movement. So we can compensate uh, for movements of the head and eye and still be able to track the pupil. So that's why it's important to figure out where the baby is looking. Uh, we, we also do other things to figure out where the baby is looking. Uh, so in any case, here is an example of one example trial. We call this a trial, but actually, of course, the video is always going on. Um, here is where the sound is presented, and that's the red. The red line shows the pupil's size. This gray line is an average of several trials in which the animation was present, but the sound is not. Okay. And what you see is that there is, in fact, a dilation that is caused by uh, the animation itself. 
but the peak of the response caused by the animation, by the visual stimulus is later, and the, the auditory response is earlier. And this is something we've seen, uh, not just we, but uh, everybody who studies vision and hearing knows is that visual signals take a longer time to reach the brain. Auditory signals reach faster. There's a difference of nearly 75 to 100 milliseconds. So, so our, our, our visual processing system is so complex. So much of, our, um, of what we see in the world is interpreted in the retina itself. That by the time the signals travel along the optic nerve to our midbrain, uh, a sound signal that started at about the same time would have reached uh, that part of the brain almost uh, 75 milliseconds earlier. So our brain has to sort of figure out ways uh, to make the two match, which is a really interesting problem in and off of itself. And that, that's some of the research we're doing right now in owls. But that research has been ongoing in humans and primates uh, for a very long time, uh, in mammals essentially. Um, so the fact that a visual stimulus will cause a delayed behavioral response is, is not surprising at all. But what it allows us to do is to take a look at this part of the response when the visual response hasn't fully kicked in. So this is where we would tell whether the baby heard the sound or not. So for a dilation response, how long before all the stores have uh, these set up to see uh, what things we respond to a little, a little more quickly? I don't know. Have you seen Minority Report? Yes. <laughs> That's what came to mind. Yep, that Tom Cruise is walking down a hallway and ads are saying, Mr. Cruise, or whatever his name was, uh, are you interested in this? And, and another great example of this was this new TV series that just came out, Altered Carbon. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Very similar things, customized ads that are tracking your eyes and head and yes. where you're looking and, and present you. Um, things that hopefully are interesting to you. Of course, you know, it's just by letting people dilation, it's kind of hard to know whether you are interested or scared or what, but at least knows that you're not habituated to them. So hopefully not too early, not too quickly, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. So there are, uh, in addition to pure science, there are other things we can foresee this response being used for. For example, it's well known that the orienting responses all kick in under stress. And that's the basis of the so-called lie detector test, um, uh, which is, you know, the, the, I forget, the polygraph test. And the idea is that when you lie, you exert more cognitive effort. When your brain um, expends more effort, your pupils dilate. Uh, so orienting responses are elicited by all sorts of things like numerical problems. Also, we have to keep in mind that the pupil can dilate due to various reasons. Uh, we know, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Stephen, that uh, we know that our pupil sizes change when the light level changes. Right? If you are in bright sunlight, your pupil is a tiny pinprick. When you are in darkness, your pupil is huge. Um, what about if it, would the um, decibel level, if it's louder, would it would it um, dilate more, or or have you looked at? Very interesting question. Yes. Um, so I, I'll get to that in a second. But but when we are looking at just pupil size, we have to be careful and try to pin down what is it that we are looking at. We could be looking at light-induced dilation. So when we present a movie 
if the screen luminance changes, if you present a visual stimulus which is brighter than what the preceding frame and the pupil constricts, well, that's not due to orienting at all. Um, it could be, it could also be a mix of orienting and light-driven changes, which is called pupillary light reflex. Yeah. Um, also, when you are engaged in a cognitive task like doing math, your pupil size increases, but that increases over several seconds. So it's like a there's a long, slow change in pupil size. The orienting response is like little bumps that appears on top of a baseline that's going up and down. Okay. So we always have to be careful of what it is it what is it that we are looking at. And so when we are examining the orienting reflex or the orienting response, uh, we are looking at just a couple of seconds after the stimulus was delivered. Um, so keeping that in mind, the next question, of course, is, uh, you know, what happens uh, when the sound gets louder? And the, and the answer to that question is actually pretty interesting. For the longest time, it was thought that the orienting response is all or nothing. That either, either, either the sound elicits it or the stimulus elicits it or it doesn't. Uh, but part of that, part of the reason why people thought that was that they hadn't looked sufficiently at stimulus intensities close to threshold. So in general, and, and I'm just going to flip back a few slides. Uh, I hope that won't be a, too much of a problem. But to go back to our OWL data, Oops, sorry. My computer decided to go to sleep in the middle. Damn. Okay. Hopefully, it'll get eventually to where we want it to go. So, here is um, uh, a barn owl pupil, uh, pupil dilation traces or, or examples of barn owl pupil responding to various sounds. And this is an example of a baseline response where there is no sound. Okay. Then we make the sound 2 dB quieter. Uh, sorry, sorry, let me back up. We make the sound um, minus 8 dB. Uh, now that sounds like a funny number. Why would it be minus 8 dB? Well, the answer is that the dB scale is relative to the human threshold of the hearing. So this is 8 dB quieter than we can hear. And maybe there's something there, we don't know. Okay, then we make the sound 6 dB louder. So we go from minus 8 to 2, and there's a clear response. And we make it another 10 dB louder, and there's an even bigger response. But if you we were to go keep going, then eventually this, um, this phenomenon is going to go away. So at or near threshold, um, a louder sound elicits a larger response. But as soon as you're about 20 dB above threshold, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, if the sound is very quiet or quiet or moderately loud or very loud, they will all elicit a full-blown dilation which will last for several seconds. So it matters, but in a very, very narrow range. And the same thing is probably true of other senses like touch and vision and, and uh, smell and taste. Oh, by the way, people, dilation can also be elicited by smell and taste. Uh, it's something we have talked about. So it doesn't matter what the um, what what the stimulus is, as long as it's something different, as long as it signals a change in the environment, it will evoke a pupil dilation response. And now, so 
Uh, now that we know that within a narrow range of the threshold, the size of the pupil reflects the intensity of the sound, we can go ahead and try and see if the same thing happens in babies. Right? That's the basis for a hearing test, is that we want to know if uh, what's the quieter sound, so in, in this case, of the sounds we presented, that would be the minus 8 dB sound, which doesn't elicit a response, whereas the 2 dB sound did. Uh, now, this is an owl's. So we want to know the same thing in babies. And so that's, uh, the, that's the experiment we are doing right now uh, based on funding from uh, the National Institute of Deafness and Communication Disorders. So NIDCD gave the company Perceptivo some funding. And uh, the idea there is to show that our proof of concept, which is that, hey, we can tell whether babies heard a sound or not based on their pupil size is actually a valid test of hearing. So what we're going to do is to uh, present the same sounds to babies as are presented in uh, uh, the ABR or the auditory brainstem response test, which is used these days to test hearing. And um, they are going to be test conducted by the same people in the same environment using the same sound stimuli. And then we can compare whether pupil dilation gives us a sensitivity that is sufficient that we can go ahead and propose this as the basis for a clinical test. So uh, in, in the lab, it seems to work fine. The question is, will it work as well in a clinic? In well, this clinic? is awesome. This is awesome. Uh, we, we so appreciate you sharing this with us and with, our, with the world uh, once we post this. This is, uh, it, I mean, that's exciting. It, first of all, just the concept of it alone is exciting. But then the fact that how you're applying that to be able to help us test infants, you know, young ones that are just too small to, to be able to give us that test and help them be able to identify issues earlier is just an outstanding and noble cause. Especially in a non-invasive way that's not going to harm them and they, you know, don't really know any better anyways. It's so wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for using all the keywords that I should have used. Like uh, <laughs> not invasive. Uh, uh, it's not invasive. There's no contact involved. There's no sedation involved, obviously. And and as a matter of fact, you know, um, in, in the image that I showed you, and early on when we were testing babies, we were having the babies in car seats. Um, the last couple of babies we tested, we actually tested while the baby was in the parents' lap. And so that is an even more comfortable uh, environment for the child, um, because. As always, the, 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 the difficult balance is to strike between how much data we want, which is as much as possible, and how comfortable the baby is or how long the baby is willing to tolerate the environment. Because, you know, we are going to have headphones on the baby. Um, the reason for the headphones is pretty simple. We want to test both ears independently, left and right ear. And uh, how long will the baby tolerate those? And the answer is probably not for tens of minutes. Uh, we've had babies tolerate them for, you know, it depends on the baby, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, some even for longer. But some of them are, you know, in a few minutes, I like, don't want them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, we have to strike this balance between um, uh, the, the, the volume of data and, and, and how effective the test is in real-world conditions, and that's uh, what we are hoping to test right now. 
So currently, um, uh, you know, this project started, was delayed due to COVID, of course, and, and we've just started uh, working on the prototype device that's going to take the, the, the bench load of equipment, the bench full of equipment that we have in the lab right now, and um, somehow package it into a, a small enough package that we can take it to the clinic move it out of the room if necessary and put it back. So something that's robust and small and easy to use. And that translation is well underway and we've done parts of it earlier, uh, but that's what we're doing right now. And early summer is when we hope to start testing babies. Um, uh, and that will be done in Portland. Um, I would be remiss if I took all the credit for this. Um, I, I've been working with uh, Professor Terry Takahashi at the University of Oregon for 20 years now. And um, research is, is one of these things, uh, especially over the long term, where it is impossible to parse out who, who has credit for which idea. So Terry and I are, are a very close team. We've been working together. We, we are lucky to get along very well. Uh, but Terry is also one of the founders of Perceptivo, which is the company that's commercializing this technology. And, and Terry and I have written all our papers together, uh, but we are also partners in, in, in the essence of whose idea is this, who's trying to take it forward, and, 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 and you know, who's responsible for coming up with uh, any progress that we've made over the last uh, 10, 10 years when we've been working with babies. Um, so uh, just as a last um, uh, bit of data, uh, these are data that show, um, you know, when, when, when we take babies and we present sounds to them multiple times, these red traces on top um, are, are from two different babies, and they show that the first few trials, we get a big response. The magenta or pink lines show that um, the success succeeding sounds, the response is a little less. And in the blue traces, you can see that towards the end of the two-minute period when we presented about uh, 14 sounds to the baby, the later sounds are uh, eliciting an even smaller response. So babies like owls or every other species tested, uh, including adult humans, are also habituate. And uh, the, let's go ahead. And so here is an example of a session in which you presented sounds at three different sound levels. Now, this is just one session that for which I'm showing you the data. But the, the, the thicker the line, the louder the sound. And, and, and the difference is pretty small, but as the sound gets quieter, the baby's response is getting smaller. Now, this difference is not dramatic, which probably tells us we are nowhere near threshold yet. If we were near threshold, then a 10 dB change in sound level uh, should have produced a huge change in pupil size. So this tells us that we are, uh, we are not approaching threshold yet. So since uh, we so, since we measured the data, this is the 31st baby we tested. We are currently in, on baby number 45. Um, so we've uh, you know sort of um, polished up our methods and we've uh, you know uh, sort of moved to quieter sounds. Um, uh, and and we've been really lucky that we've had a lot of support from our university, um, the University of Oregon, over the last 10 years on three different occasions has given us funding to translate our basic research into applied research. Um, uh, so on, in 2008, 2015, uh, 2018, and again uh, uh, in, uh, in, in 2019, they've given us uh, uh, 
sums of money that were enough to, to keep us going. Uh, uh, a lot of this was obviously work we did on our own time, uh, but thanks to the university's funding, we were able to keep this translating forward. You know, that very expensive camera that I talked about, yeah, that was uh, uh, thanks to money that the university gave us. And so we really, I, I, I feel really lucky that the university has an in-house funding program which gives small amounts of money, you know, $50,000, $10,000, $5,000 here and there, that, that enable research projects which have some promise for commercialization to be kept going. And, and then they've helped us set up the company and are giving us some support, administrative support, uh, because people like me are, are good at a number of things, but what we aren't really good at is, is doing administrative tasks, you know, um, which when we are involved with Instead, institutions like NIH and you know the, the hospital we are working with, uh, well, that those bureaucracies are um, something else. Um, but yeah, so this is where we are. We are we are taking this data uh, and, and we are trying to see how effectively we can create a commercial product. And uh, um, very nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this.